Welcome to the Afghanistan Project podcast. I'm Beth Bailey here with my co-host, Michael Cook. Today, we're thrilled to have on a guest who's been working on an issue that we know resonates with so many of our Afghan allies, and that is the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program. Maria Matash is an Afghan-American attorney, human rights activist, adjunct law professor, and nonprofit leader, as well as a member of the U.S. Afghan Women's Council, and she's also on the board of the Nuristan Foundation. Miriam has represented numerous priority two applicants to the USRAP, and we're excited to hear more about the state of that program and how its serious shortcomings are impacting our allies, as well as some of the ways that you got involved in this work, Miriam. So thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Beth, for having me on your podcast. Thank you, Michael. So let's just get right in. You know, when did you get involved with uh, representing clients who were realizing that they needed to get out of Afghanistan? I had been actually involved in representing Afghans prior to the evacuation, mostly with respect to business immigration, individuals who wanted to set up a business in the U.S. and to be able to get a residency and then a green card through that so I'd already been involved in that, and I'd actually had a seminar in Kabul in 2019 regarding second citizenship. For some reason, I had felt that Afghans should, especially in the business sector, should have a second passport so that they could travel the world more free, freely to do business. Uh, and a lot of people were hesitant about it and kind of reluctant to do it. Uh, and I had given them the information just so they, they would know their options. But it was really after August 15th with the Taliban takeover that there was this surge of need to try to find ways, obviously, to get out, especially to the United States. I, uh, I had never heard about second citizenship. How many people would you say did, you know, like a just a figure, how many people did pursue that avenue and did it help them when August 15th came around? Well, I was doing it with a limited number of people with a uh, partner company in Afghanistan. And there were very few people who had that level of resources or income. Most of these countries require investments of over quarter of a million dollars in their countries to get second citizenship and then to get a passport from that country. And um, I worked with two businesses who went through the process and did it. Uh, they the owner actually had businesses in other countries, but he needed to be able to get into those countries to even check on his businesses. Um, but a lot of Afghans were familiar with this um, in Turkey, and so a lot of them had gone maybe in the mid-2000s because some of them saw opportunities there for business, and Turkey had a great program where you could buy a property um, and get residency or a citizenship. And then after the August 15th, change of kind of regime. Uh, many others uh, went to Turkey as well, but Turkey got so many people, not only from Afghanistan, but Syria, that they changed the requirements of their program. So many Afghans, it's hard to give figures because a lot of them, they don't report what country they're from, or you can't get the data from those countries. But um, I believe a lot of business people did get the second citizenship in Turkey, which give, gave them another passport to use to travel not only to that country, but other countries. And some Afghans had already been going to European countries to do business and resettle because of family connections. And, and the interesting thing with Afghanistan, just having seen so much conflict over the years, is that people had families and have families in so many different parts of the world that they become like immigration paralegals. I tell people Afghans are so great with knowing how to kind of maneuver 
the programs of so many different countries. Like I'll tell them about a program right away. They can ask the right questions and figure it out. So you have Afghans around the world for over 40 years. And a lot of them were having their family come to those countries once they could request their father, their brother, their sister to go there. So this kind of exodus had been happening, you know, slowly over time, but August 15th obviously caused a huge surge. Sure. Um, what kinds of cases were you working with during that surge? Was it SIV applicants? Um, were you filing humanitarian parole? How, how did that work? Yes, before uh, August 15th, I did have some companies who I was doing SIV applications for their employees just to make sure they're done correctly and they could get uh, through the process more quickly because with the prior administration during the Trump years and even during the Obama years, the program was moving very slowly. Like it would take uh, years to get through from submission to case number to even calm review of an SIV application. Uh, and sometimes just getting it done technically correctly from the beginning could actually save you maybe a years of time. I have to say after August 15th, it wasn't any more about me being an attorney and, and, and having clients. I didn't even have time to onboard a new client. I, a lot of it was just pro bono work. It was starting with people I knew personally and, and, and some family members that I still had there. Uh, friends that I'd met. Uh, I had a series called Leading the Way and I was interviewing Afghan women leaders trying to reach out to them. And so many people reaching out to me became like my WhatsApp became a crisis line. And it was very overwhelming not to be able to respond to everyone's request for assistance and trying to figure out what I could do to help them. So I would say the first two months after August 15th, it was clients that I had already, which for those I wouldn't say lucky enough. It's just that I had all their information already that I had as clients. I was able to get a lot of them and I have to credit Task Force Argo through a personal contact that they somebody knew my sister. It's a very interesting story. She was doing brows. My sister owns a brow studio in Loudoun County, Virginia, and she was doing the brows for somebody who was part of Task Force Argo and said, oh, my sister's trying to get people out. And she's like, oh, I have this task force and I'm doing this. So my sister connected us on signal and right away she was sharing information and I shared information and they were so amazing. I, it felt like, you know, the, um, when you buy a new car and they say that they, there's that voice that can come if you're stuck by the roadside, like roadside assistance. That's literally what it felt like. There was always somebody I could call and I had them in touch with people. I would give their information and they would be calling them when I was asleep. So through Task Force Argo, which was the main kind of evac organization that I was in touch with, I was able to get uh, some families out and then some to Mazar who went to humanitarian city. And then I filed humanitarian parole petitions for them. And at that time, State Department was kind of asking for those case numbers. And I, I don't know if they could check just the fact that I had a filing because those petitions are with USCIS and a lot of those individuals were paroled in through the powers of the CPB, the you know Customs and Border Patrol. So I was able to get uh, many clients out that way, and then some family who had SIV pending applications, and um, also um, some individuals who left from Pakistan and 
I was able to, you know, help them process their parole cases there, but the numbers that were much smaller than what I filed for. And then it was really September, end of September to October, November, then I started getting people who wanted to hire me. And it was overwhelming. I mean, we charge much smaller fees than what the time was covering. So 2022, you know, wasn't a great year for my law firm financially. A lot of lawyers would be like, are you crazy to do this? I mean, I had to use income from another business sometimes to cover my costs because I didn't feel good about charging people, you know, more than what they could really afford at the time. It was just challenging all around, mostly humanitarian, going back to your question, parole, because a lot of them, the other routes just weren't going to uh, be ready in time. Some family-based petitions, a, a couple of employment ones where they had a linkage to a sponsor. Um, and that was, you know, about it and, uh, and some SIVs. And then the other work I've done on advocacy, that's my work pro bono as a volunteer, not for a specific client, but for groups of people. So... I'd love to ask a question. You might not be able to answer this, but the businesses that had you help with their SIV applications, that's new information to me just because mostly what I'm hearing are intransigent businesses that don't want to provide the information because it's just overwhelming to try to figure out, you know, oh, I don't, um, I, can you name the companies that you that had you do that information or is that not? Well, because of attorney client privilege, yeah. as you know, I cannot share or disclose the uh, particular name of a client. Um, I would just say that there were two Afghan American owned companies where they wanted to help their employees, but were overwhelmed with trying to put their documentation together and their employees weren't well versed enough to put together their own petition. So we made like a package for each of them to be able to, uh, get their packages together so that they could be approved. And I'm happy to say uh, most of those I started in fall 2021 and um, most of them have gotten calm approvals by now. We're waiting for them either for care relocation or they're in third countries waiting for interviews. Uh, but those were companies that wanted to help their employees where their employee wouldn't have had the money to um, get the representation. It was a lot more work again, because then each person ends up having questions through the process. But there's many great organizations out there that are doing this for larger numbers of SIVs who have, uh, they either have foundation or government grants to do it. And they are great with kind of shepherding people along the process. And the key with sometimes these applications are to try to get care relocation, which is this state department program to relocate them to Doha. If, because the wait times in Pakistan for interviews have just increasingly got so long. And we know the challenges there, getting the visa, paying for that, spending the time there waiting while you don't have a job. So for SIVs, I tell them, if you can take the risk of staying in Afghanistan, try to stay there because you going to Pakistan is going to lead to a lot of other challenges for you. You might be running out of resources trying to wait there. Yeah, and what yeah, about um, what about P one and P two applicants? Are we seeing any success with people getting out on those programs? So going to P one to P two for those who don't know what these programs are, uh, it is called a priority refugee program. That's through the uh, PRM, what's called Population Refugees Migration Department of the Department of State. So other programs like special immigrant visas are congressionally uh, mandated programs that the U.S. Citizen and Information Services manages, right? They manage those programs. And for SIVs, there's no visa, you know, the visas are available right now until such time as those congressionally 
um, authorized numbers are given. But this P program is interesting because um, people are getting confused as there is a P2 priority refugee program for Afghans. Under P2, there's P1, 2, 3, and 4. Because I try to keep myself organized about what is this, where does this fit in, what are the requirements. So P1 is the one that an individual who worked for the U.S. government or you were known to the U.S. embassy, right? They refer you. And that goes to whatever agency knew you or knew of your work. And that agency then determines if your uh, referral then will get approved and get sent to the Department of State. Um, P2 is the one where you worked with the media organization um, in Afghanistan, either as a freelancer or directly, you know, with the organization as an employee, or you worked for a U.S. nonprofit organization. Now, this could be one that had government funding or had its own funding, and you had to have been an employee. And how they're characterizing that is going to be an issue because when the program first came out, it had these broad requirements. But then one or two years later, the organization may have gotten an email saying, can you give this or that information to prove the relationship, which is fair, right? You just have to show that that relationship existed. Um, and, and so P2 are mainly these, uh, these categories. Um, and the third one within P2 is that if you could have gotten an SIV, but you didn't work one year, then you can request your employer to give you this P2 referral. But what's confusing to people is who do I then, okay, you know, request of this, if my contract was from Department of Defense, but I'm the company, who do I request that they consider my referral, right? And so there's just not a lot of clear information. And then P3 is very interesting because this is that category that uh, U.S. government uh, has given information about, but I haven't seen anyone being able to utilize it yet. And that is uh, certain family members of those who either came and uh, obtained asylum, Afghans who got asylum within the last three years, or they came through an SIV to the United States or potentially parole, right? So the, the policy thinking being that if somebody is at risk because of an SIV, how can we help their family members left behind? So it's great to have this program on paper. The problem is, who do you go to for this? Now, I tried to dig and dig about a year ago on this for individuals. And I was told, okay, the resettlement agency that resettled that individual, they have to put in the request. I followed up with three of them. None of them knew how to do it. So there was no mechanism to actually request this. Whether that's there now, it could have changed. But as about six months ago, I couldn't get any clear answers from very large resettlement agencies. They said they would get back to me and they never did about this P3 category. If there's a person that was here earlier on asylum and they um, want to, and this is another route to get someone to the US if they can't qualify for the other uh, formal ways. And then number four is something that some of your viewers may have heard, but we have not gotten information with respect to Afghan nationals, and that's called Welcome Core. There's a website, welcomecore.org, and it's a nice program that allows individuals to create a, a group of five, kind of modeled after the Canadian program, where they can bring their favorite refugee to the US. Now, you're supposed to deposit in a bank $1,275 I think $75 per person showing that, let's say it's a family of five, you have to show that in a, an account that they haven't told us exactly how this could be done, but 
apparently if you're an NGO or even a private person, you could say, okay, I have this much in my bank account and it would go towards this refugee family. Here's a group of five and we would help resettle them. So in essence, you're creating a little private group that would be the resettlement agency for that refugee family. And you're gonna show what your plan is to resettle them in your area. This was um, supposed to have been launched for Afghans to use as of April, because I follow these things. Back in January, it came out. I attended the training, and it's been utilized so far to resettle individuals from Africa. And, and those people have been waiting like a decade, right, for their resettlement time to come to the U.S. And so there's many individuals, organizations, but the State Department, as far as I know, has not launched P4 capabilities for individuals to assist Afghans to resettle through this program. So P2 actually has four components within it legally that I have analyzed. But what's problematic about it is the ability to actually go through this P2 process in a reasonable period of time. And that is the challenge that I think hasn't yet been solved. It's been over a year and a half that the State Department has said that they would set up mechanisms to have what's called a resettlement support center in Pakistan. We keep hearing that the Pakistani government has been pushing back on this because they don't want to encourage more Afghan refugees to come. But then the State Department so far, unless they're working on a plan and they're launching it soon, they have not set up that capability in another third country. And what's happened is that many people who did get P2 referrals and case numbers were told, they were encouraged to go to Pakistan shortly after the August Taliban takeover. And it's been now two years, they've been waiting there. And I had to break the very bad news, but I believe in honesty with my clients because I don't want them to make life plans for something that is not going to happen. And that is that, I'm sorry to say, but you got this case number and we registered you with the US Embassy and you got this nice email, but nothing has been done to take your case forward. And we're gonna have to, I believe we should get you to another country if your family can help you do that because uh, there's no movement on P2s in Pakistan. And there's thousands and thousands of individuals in very bad situations. And the Department of State, I believe needs to do more. And yeah, I've heard that they have begun processing, but no one will say how many. Interestingly, I would like to go back to P3, the reunification, because I wondered what your take on this is. I recently talked to a, a, a large number of resettlement individuals working on the resettlement issue, and they, they talked about all the children who were brought here without their family members in the NEO. Um, and I wondered, do you think P3 is being utilized to bring their parents over here? Because I did have a, a close contact whose um, parents were brought to, um, gosh, I can't remember actually. Um, oh my goodness. Camp C he called it Camp Casey, CAS. Um, but they, uh, they were held up. They were supposed to take two months to process and they were held up for about five months because they were, uh, the government was bringing over all these families of children who were brought over on the NEO. So do you think that that is being utilized to that end? P3? Uh, I believe it is. And I think Cass, what you're referring to is the military base in Qatar that's used yes. to process um, 
Afghans for immigration purposes. Now, what's interesting, what's happened in CAS is that some individuals, the numbers are very limited. I had seen a number of about 1600 and it was somebody shared it on an advocacy call that, and I was trying to ascertain, was that the primary or primary plus family? Because if it's primary plus family, that's a very small number uh, of individuals who were likely processed through P1, P2. So they were relocated from Afghanistan or perhaps Pakistan to that military base. And what happens there is they take what could be a three to five year process and they condense it down. So it's like an expedited fast track refugee processing. And I understand, you know, we have to uh, utilize the mechanisms that we have available within the US system. But what I do believe can happen is that more could be done to provide resources for those mechanisms to work after this much time. Mm -hmm. And so what has happened at CAS is that uh, an individual, if there is no U.S. pathway for them, right, if they can't, if they're in there or there's a U.S. pathway and there's no visa available. For example, if you are a green card holder and you have your spouse in Afghanistan, you can file the I-130, the first step, get an approval. But now the visas are no longer available and it's not clear when it would become available. So if you're trying to reunify that family, you have to find a workaround. And the workaround that is there is for care to take them to CAS and process them as a refugee. But from what I'm seeing, CARE is not wanting to do that. And if they are, it's very kind of behind the scenes and they don't want many people knowing, because I understand there may be limitations on some capacity, but it's a very difficult situation because the families don't understand that because they do see people who had a P1 and they just got, you know, taken from Kabul to CAS, right? People hear what happens and they're very astute to asking them, well, what did you have and how did you get there? So it's kind of hard to get hold information, like I said, from Afghans. When you're in a survival mode, you're going to pay attention to these details. So I get people coming to me saying, oh, this person, they were able and they didn't have an SIV. And I said, look, you don't know who they worked for, who they knew. A lot of this is political. So What's happening is a lot of this process is advocacy and politics, not legal and not even process of a program. So if there is a will, if that family has someone behind them who could make things happen, yes, they could potentially be taken to CAS and processed as a P3 refugee. And that way they're able. Now, the good part of that is when they come to the U.S., they're already approved to be here, right? Because they've been vetted. They have their medical, obviously, which happens with everyone who comes, but they have a permanent legal pathway. They don't have to apply for asylum and they don't even have to pay the fees to adjust status. It can get very expensive to do that, you know, if you, unless some nonprofit organization is going to help you and they have funds from government to do it. So I think this has happened. The challenge is that the State Department is not giving clear numbers, even though C Congress has, I think, asking through some of the reporting to say, can you give us a breakdown of these numbers? I haven't seen a clear report with numbers saying this is people who were processed at CAS under these different categories. Yeah, it's very frustrating. All they'll give you, and I've because I've asked multiple times the State Department for various media pieces, how many P1 or P2, because that's how I usually ask, but now I'll just say P2, regardless how many P1 and P2 applicants mm -hmm. have been processed, and they just refer you to RAPSNET which just gives a broad number. And as some of my um, sources have pointed out, you know, it's not, 
it depends on what country they came from. It doesn't mean your country of origin that they were processed, you know, in this place. So it's, it's very confusing and there is no concrete data, which leads me to think that, you know, the, the it's still just a cluster. And, and I no longer hear, I don't know if you still see this, it used to be that um, all the USRAP applicants were very um, coordinated online. And anytime somebody talked about USRAP, it was just a barrage of tweets from applicants who were stranded in Pakistan, living with you know higher cost of living, children not in school, no ability to work as a refugee in Pakistan, you know, all this horrible. And then when the deportations started happening, because a lot of visas were expiring and getting a renewed visa was very, very expensive for Afghans and some of them could not afford it. And they were terrified of being um, taken back to the country. But there was just this really coordinated um, attempt to kind of drum up media attention, but I don't see that anymore. Do you see that, Miriam? In terms of uh, media coverage, I think there have been recently because the time, anytime there's the anniversary, right, since it was the second year anniversary of Taliban takeover and what has happened with individuals, some of these individuals have gotten, um, it, you know, interviews themselves uh, with Voice of America or BBC or Radio Free Liberty because it's something that the Afghan diaspora worldwide wants to know about. But in terms of media, in terms of media coverage in the US, I have seen some articles, including ones that you have written and others that have gotten in a written press, very few of like television coverage people, you know, reporters don't seem as interested about this story. Uh, but I think what's important to keep in mind here is that Afghans understand these things take time because they've seen family go through this. You know, my family, when they came in the late 70s, early 80s, and people had to go through Pakistan, I was lucky because my father was in the U.S. on a scholarship and we came as tourists to visit him and then got political asylum. But many Afghans became refugees in Pakistan. But under President Reagan's program at that time, they were doing like this expedited refugee processing. And it really shortened times because people don't understand. And when I see the reports, I feel so uh, bad for people who are in refugee situations from other either conflict situations or really dire economic situations or ethnic situations where they're forced to leave their country and they're living in such difficult situations in third countries where they don't have visas or rights to work, then they're waiting because the wait times can be eight, 10 years, 15 years to be able to get to another country. Uh, because one of the things that I've had to write about in my humanitarian parole petitions, I'm getting requests for evidence, right, from the U.S. government. And they're asking me questions that they know the answers to. So I get very frustrated with this. It's like, come on, USCIS, you know that UNHCR registration doesn't give any right of protection and it's not giving any guarantee of resettlement. Why are you making me give you a report telling you what you should already know? It's It feels like a game sometimes. Um, but what am I doing? Okay, I'll give you that expert opinion from a professor, right, who's done this for 23 years. So she can tell you that, A, when a refugee registers with UNHCR, it really means nothing for them. It's just a way for them to figure out how many refugees are in that country. And it's up to that country. Are they a, you know, a signatory to the refugee convention or not? Uh, if this person even gets any protection, 
And even if they are not pushed back out of the country, does that mean they can work and have any benefits in that country? Is UNHCR even helping them? Or is UNHCR going to help them find a country to go? No, because UNHCR will say, sorry, we're just an organization that takes your information and it's up to a nice country in another part of the world to allow you, you know, to come. So there's a worldwide crisis with respect to refugees to begin with. Now, on top of that, the State Department, though, and the U.S. government deciding that, you know what, we're going to encourage Afghans to go through this program. And a lot of people remember they were told, go to Pakistan and wait there. And within a year and a half, right, your case will be processed. When I saw that, even at that point, I didn't really know the full scope of the problems with refugee processing. And it gave, and it gave people hope. But now they've gone there. It's been more than two years. And to find out that very little has happened. And here's the thing. I don't like to play the race or religion card, but I just look at the numbers and I look at what was done for United for Ukraine. And when the will was there, wow, I looked at that program and I said, I can't believe that so many things we were told could not happen because we needed congressional approvals, right? All these legal things that were told us, oh, we can't do that. It was being done. And, th and those individuals were processed. They didn't have to go to a third country, right? The time for processing was so much shorter. So if there is a political will, there's a way. And in that time that Afghans were told to first to go to third countries, to become refugees and to leave their homes, sell everything they had, they were bas it's basically been misrepresentation. You know, don't like to use the word fraud, but you know, a few more years and, of this and we'd be at that point. But um, just the lack of humanity of understanding what they're going through and to find the solution. For example, what's one solution? One thing that we were told, I was given a briefing um, uh, by a organization that does really great work in this space. And it was kind of shocking because they said, oh, do you know that it literally can take five to eight years to get through this process? And I was like, what? That's not what we were told. That's a very different picture than one to two years, right? So they, were, they said, well, somebody from USCIS has to do what's called a circuit ride to go to those countries and interview these people in person. And I said, federal courts are doing remote processing. Why are they not doing video interviews? You know, why are you making these extra hurdles? And we're always given this legal reason, oh, it's in this section, but when there's a will, there's a way to find a way around that. And that's what's the frustrating part, right? Everybody understands there's resources. Yes, the situation in Ukraine uh, required there to be a response to assist people there. But when that was done, why can't this be done for Afghans? And the way I see it is just there's just lack of will to do so. And I'm not saying there's amazing people working at the Department of State and USCIS doing their job, but they're working within a system. And unless from the top there's some other directive given, they get constrained by what options they can even offer. So that's what's frustrating. Why it has taken so long to find solutions? Why can't they find other countries to negotiate with? Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, the Northern countries to say, listen, if we create this program, Afghans would come here to process and leave your country because they don't wanna stay in your country. So this would be good for you for business, right? What does the Department of State and the US government say? Well, Afghan, if you want to get an interview, get yourself to a third country, even a regular interview. I I analyze so many countries' laws to find places to get my clients for interviews, have had some success, but then you go there and there's another challenge. For example, got my client to a third country, 
We said, this is the language. She speaks Dari. They won't give a translator. They won't let the petitioner, who's her fiance, be the translator. They won't let us do a lot remote translation. So I've been on LinkedIn trying to find an Afghan or even, well, will they let an Iranian, right? Can an Iranian national go to an embassy for translation? So they put this other hurdle in front of you when those hurdles could be uh, resolved. And that and that's the frustration. It's, uh, that's a hurdle that sticks here too. Um, I wrote a piece a while back about a family who came across the border with Mexico and claimed, you know, asked for asylum and uh, they've been rejected in immigration court or they've gone twice to immigration court, maybe three times, but they had their case dismissed, you know, rescheduled because there was no translator. And then it, they came back and still no translator and a family member had come the first time. And, and the judge just, you know, was like, well, that no. And, and you just, then the, the third time the judge asked, well, what happens if I send you back to Afghanistan? And that just floored me. Like, do you not know? I don't think, I don't think people do know. I don't think they quite understand. I see that a lot. It's very distressing. And, um, that was a lot for me, but my question for you would be, are, are you getting um, clients now who have come across the border with Mexico and are attempting to do that kind of, um, it's a more punitive process of claiming asylum? Um, I have had a number of individuals approach me and I try to refer them to nonprofit organizations that again have government funding where I could, um, try to find them a resource that they could utilize. Because if I were to build a team around a defensive asylum case, it would just cost them too much money that they usually don't have. Uh, so I've seen these situations and, you know, I'm all about legal immigration. And what I'm finding is that individuals, when they get in these life-threatening situations, obviously with their children or family at risk, then they have to find whatever the way they can. and when the legal immigration system is broken, then people will go to what is working. And then sometimes the unofficial routes are working and people will take that risk because making that journey to get into Mexico is not easy. And a lot of things can happen um, in that process. What has happened in the Southern border generally has actually been quite interesting because it's a management of a bigger problem and I think the administration has tried to address what is happening there. There's so many components of it. We had the COVID you know, issues prior and then May 11th when the COVID uh, vaccine requirements lifted, it was creating another surge of people. So this app was created called CPB1, very interesting. Now, many people who are on the, what you would say right or conservative, they've criticized this saying, oh, well, you're just giving appointment times to people to then just come illegally to the border. And while I am a big proponent of legal immigration, I'm not about you know encouraging obviously people to uh, break the law and I don't ever get involved. If I know someone's going through Mexico, I basically tell them I can't speak with you because I don't want there to be any uh, appearance that I encouraged you to do that. And after, if you get into the US, then you could speak with me. And then at that point, you know, I can try to refer you, but I don't even work on those uh, type of cases. But in speaking to them and gathering information, I kind of got this picture that, uh, yes, 
this is happening, but so many people from these other countries for whom parole programs were established, the reason why that was done is just to make it more organized. And there was actually a Supreme Court case um, that came out this year where the state of Texas was suing the federal government, stating that uh, we have a right to control our border. So, you know, this policy, um, you know, should not be allowed this decision that was made by the administration. And it was interesting, the Supreme Court and basically layman's terms said, no, it's the right of the federal government to regulate immigration um, across, you know, national borders. And the parole program, because what's interesting, many people don't know, and I don't want to get too much into boring technicalities, but uh, if anyone's interested, how when people come in, there's two ways. We think of it more the illegal route, right? We're thinking mostly of a mule taking somebody across some unpoliced section of the border. That is actually illegal migration. And sometimes very desperate people do that. Sometimes people are tricked into doing that, telling them that's the way that they have. But there's actually a legal way to approach uh, immigration officials on our southern border. It's even in the northern border, but many people, of course, can't get into Canada to do this. And this is where the CPB1 app came about, which was people are coming because at the border, you can present your case to CPB. And there were some nonprofit organizations that were doing that. And I was like, oh, this is fascinating. I didn't even know about this. So you could get that person or that family connected to that nonprofit, they were going, this is before the app, to CPB and presenting all the documents. So it's kind of like a little mini immigration hearing that you're talking about that a judge would do because the CPB officer then becomes the judge and jury and they can parole someone in, okay? This is what happened. So if somebody says, well, how did the US bring all of those 80 to 100,000 Afghans on those planes? Basically what happened is that that's why they were taken to a third location first, right? They weren't directly flown from Afghanistan into the US. They were taken to a third location and there CPB paroled them in. Now, back in October of 2022, the White House issued a memo saying, we're not gonna allow CPB to parole in any more Afghans. They just were trying to appease to politics to say, we're not gonna really encourage that. Um, but it still has been happening. That's how people were getting in from humanitarian city to that conference center in Leesburg if they didn't have like an SIV case or family case. So what's happened in the southern border is that Afghans have gone there. Some of, some of them have gone through the app, gotten an appointment and gotten through and they get you know, paperwork that tells them, well, you have this much time. Sometimes they've gotten the paper that says you're a parolee. You have two years, you get benefits and you can apply for asylum. Sometimes though, they're just allowed in and then they get kind of a notice of deportation, right? Notice of intent to deport an NOID paper. And then they have to go through that uh, defensive immigration process, which is very uh, scary, is confusing. Um, some of them, you know, if they were in detention, uh, they were separated from family members. So there's a lot of different things that happen. But some people, including Afghans, utilize mules and they got through illegally. They didn't even go through CPB and get any paperwork. So then they have a harder time. You know, they can apply for asylum. Then it goes up. It's up to the immigration judge. And they really do need legal representation. I mean, as smart as Afghans are with immigration issues, they don't know that at every step of the way, there's a little landmine waiting for them. And 
the government doesn't have to be looking out for their interests, right? They really need an attorney. And there's some organizations that do this work that then can represent them in court. Absolutely. Yeah. The family that I wrote about, they were given conditional parole at the border when they requested asylum. But, you know, that is it's, the you know, you still have to go and appear. And the other thing that's interesting is the CBP one app is only available in, I believe, English, um, Spanish and Russian. And so if an Afghan speaking, you know, Pasha or Dari is trying to navigate that app, they need to have somebody who speaks those languages well, I would imagine, to Well, if they've gotten to the southern border, they were smart enough to figure out how to do that, I would say, right? They must have gone through uh, some country in the south and gotten their way up with individuals who spoke Spanish, English, so um, they must have been able to navigate. So yes, they they put it in those other languages, obviously because of the numbers of people. Um, still, it's very low numbers of Afghans because they have to get a visa to one of those countries to be able to then even try to make that dangerous trek uh, to Mexico. Yeah, CBP just released the numbers I asked for them. Uh, and it was 10,000 Afghans in the first nine months of this last fiscal year, which was a huge increase from the 1,160 in the previous fiscal year. And that's, like I said, that's just for the first nine months, but that, you know, the Brazil route, which is what most of them are using is, has become so popular and, you know, people are willing to take that risk, but it's very dangerous. And I, I've had a lot of people ask me about it because I've reported on it and I always remind them like, this is not, I would never ever recommend taking on that level of risk. I've heard of people, you know, pulling babies out of the river in, you know, the Darien Pass, like it's not a safe place to go. Beth, is that number the the number of people that have been accepted into the U.S. through the Mexican border? It was everything. So it's, I believe it's people who were probably caught being muled across because um, it is, they broke it down. Actually, I have the paper right here. Um, some of them were brought in through CBP, some of them through U.S. Border Protection, and some through Office of Field Operations. And I don't know what the breakdown of, you know, how those organizations, you know, why that particular group brought those people in. I mean, for instance, in the first nine months of fiscal year 2023, it was a breakdown of 5,095 CBP 4,927 USBP, and then 168 Office of Field Operations. So it's usually, I think that holds actually, yeah, I'd say that's about accurate. Half CBP, half USBP, and then a couple OFO for each of the other years too. But, you know, it's, I've talked to people too. Um, I wanted ICE to tell me, you know, how many people are in custody who are Afghan right now, because I've had nonprofit people tell me, yeah, there are Afghans in ICE custody and they won't let us talk to them. And that's another huge concern that, you know, we've got, we've created this crisis. It's because of our failure to process P2, our failure to process SIV applicants. And then the people who don't even fall into those categories, you know, all of the people who should be covered by the Afghan Adjustment Act, if we finally pass it, um, what are they, you know, what do we tell them? Well, Beth, I think you point out something very interesting because, uh, you know, most Americans are good people. They uh, are 
civic oriented and they want to help others. And of course, people think about their jobs and their life and making sure that they have their family's needs met first before they can think about helping kind of others. But I think what the veterans have realized is that this really has nothing to do with the Afghans. This has to do with who we are as a nation and a people. What do we want to be known for? Because as you said, this accountability, now, no one's going to say, okay, all the problems in Afghanistan were the U.S.'s fault. No, there were Afghan warlords and leaders that failed the Afghan people that were more interested in lining their pockets and working for foreign governments. And they were representing the poor, you know, the masses of poor people that they had that they needed to help. You have countries around Afghanistan who are utilizing still Afghanistan to fight proxy wars. There's countries that are just interested in the resources and those we see now who's there trying to now get minerals and be there for economic reasons. And that's what they were interested in Afghanistan for. Um, and we have the U.S. that had its own strategic interest in the country, but in doing that got the government and the people and veterans and nonprofits so involved in saying we need to help this country rebuild because we forget what happened before the Afghans helped to defeat communism. Look, we're still worried about now what Russia is going to do, right? For a while, Russia was just, no, nobody was really thinking about Russian kind of threat to U.S. Um, but I remember it because my life was affected because of that conflict. I lost family members. I lost a grandfather. So at that time, what the Afghans did was fight for the freedom of the world. And this is where it makes me very sad that Afghans are having such a hard time getting visas because people are treating them like they're terrorists and like they are the worst people on earth. And so that's what I always like to remind people, you know, yes, I was born in that country, so I have some bias here, but let's just look at history. When did the Berlin Wall fall? You know, when was the Cold War ended? What would have happened if the USSR had taken Afghanistan and had, had kept going right and so there was a lot of a lot of lives lost and what happened in afghanistan after the russians invaded and the u.s abandoned the country then then we had the second round of instability in the early 90s and then the taliban come and take over and 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 have their agenda and 9 11 happens and osama bin laden happens to be in afghanistan even though the taliban said they weren't part of it at that time go back and look at interviews done with the Taliban. I mean, I, I'm not obviously a supporter of the Taliban, but I believe in looking at the picture completely, even if I don't like who's on the other side. And so we went into Afghanistan stating we had a goal. So once we went in there and then we created this program, we kind of pulled the plug on a patient that still needed life support. And why it needed life support was our issue because for so many years, I was in so many meetings and we would say, stop supporting warlords. And it was a policy decision to do so. Nobody had to give them millions of dollars and give them. At that time, the warlords wouldn't have been in power without U.S. support. That's you know what my opinion is. And so once we brought them to that point and then we just leave the country and then we allow this group that. So, so what is the picture? Were the Taliban a terrorist group? Or were they fighting for, you know, anti-corruption against a, a corrupt government that we backed, right? Because in that year, on the, all those years where U.S. lives were being lost, Afghan civilians were being killed, the American public was told this group is a terrorist group. We have them on all these sanctioned lists, right? You can't even talk to them. So then when we started negotiating with them, and I say we meaning our country, then 
why wasn't there conditions set for what their involvement would be? And then we just kind of, it was it just, okay, we're surrendering, but we don't want it to look like a surrender. I just feel like there's so many important questions that are not answered. And then we're told, okay, now it's the past, whatever happened, but no, let's look through history. If we don't ask these questions now, our children, it's going to come back to us in a different way. So I think when you talked about accountability, I think these programs, otherwise people say, well, I don't care. This is the immigration system. Why should we do anything for these people? So I think that reminder that this is about accountability. The U.S. was part of why there is a problem there now. Yeah, and, and there is a, an incredible level of um, disinterest or misinformation, I think, about Afghans worldwide. I've not ever heard a story, a good story, about an Afghan relocating to a country. It is always a story of, I feel like an outsider here, people are not kind to me. And it breaks my heart because every time I talk to an Afghan, the first thing they ask is, how are you? And they could be having the worst day of their life, and they will always do that. And they are the kindest people in the worst circumstances. And it's just, it's heart wrenching to, uh, to see that and to see the regression under the Taliban. Um, and like you say, the, it's really, um, I know Michael, you're read, you finished it, but the new book by Jerry Dunleavy and, um, Hassan, I can't remember the man's first name, but it's called Kabul and he, they do a great job of going through all these, you know, oh, we're working with the Taliban now at HKIA and, you know, <laughs> what? It's, it's, a, it's a very jarring experience to read that book and it should be. And everyone should read that book and really um, see with firsthand sources, you know, what was happening. But I digress. I want to ask you one final question. You know, you've helped a lot of, we didn't talk about this today, but you've helped women activists to find safe haven in the aftermath of all this. And I'm just wondering, and we talked about this before we started recording today, the, the situation for women. And, you know, that was some of the reason that we went into Afghanistan in the first place. But um, what what's your take on that situation now and the danger for Afghan women and why the world needs to take notice of that? Well, we're seeing the worst gender apartheid in the world. It's not Islamic. It's against Afghan women's rights as a human being. And I, I hear a lot from Afghans who say, well, when I go back, there's some people are going back. Oh, it's more safe. And the Taliban are doing all these great things. And I say, okay, they should be. For 20 years, they wanted to take power of this country. So take the power you know, get what is needed done to manage a country. But why are you on this campaign to take away every freedom that a woman has the rights to? And that shows me that their agenda goes beyond just providing these services for the Afghans. So it, it becomes this complex situation where if you criticize the Taliban on women's issues that you're told, but there's all this good things that are happening as compared to the prior government. I said, let's not mix issues. The prior government did a lousy job on security. We know it was highly corrupt government, but the two wrongs don't make a right. So just because they failed in those areas doesn't mean that this new regime can just say, because we're cleaning the streets and we've done some great pet projects that that gives us more authority to then discriminate against women as their, as per their Islamic right. And I think uh, what's happening is they're just utilizing their own version of 
outdated cultural practices and calling it Islam. So they're giving Islam as a religion a bad perception. And that's why there's been so many Muslim scholars and leaders in other countries uh, trying to give them advice. And now their new policy is this is our internal affairs and don't even ask us about this because it's something that we can just do. We don't you know, tell other countries what to do with their internal affairs. So this is their new line of argument. And I think that it has to be countered to say no, if you want recognition and you want to be part of the international community, Afghan women's rights is, women's rights is global. And so it is not just an internal affair. So I think that the international community has to do a better job of finding some arguments. I just, I'm like, what are these diplomats doing? They just go there and they sit and they're just showing so much respect for what the Taliban viewpoint is. And I think the Taliban have been the better negotiators and they have gotten, if we look back at the different points that they've raised when they wanted 5,000 prisoners released, right? Whatever they've been requesting, they have gotten it. And this is what, uh, you know, maybe they should teach a class on, you know, negotiations and strategy and because they, they've, they've succeeded at having most of what they want, right? Whether it took them time to do it, they got it. So I think for Afghan women, um, they've been let down by the world. And there's few organizations and people who still care. Most are silent. They're not doing what they can to speak up, speak out and take action. I mean, the US government has um, a person who has a specific mandate, Rina Amiri. She's doing a great job, in my opinion, but with respect to the limitations she has to go and deliver these messages and to try to convince the Taliban of, of you know, why these policies are, are not good. It, but if the Taliban don't listen and there's nothing to back it, no enforcement and no ability to use money or any kind of pressure, then what the Taliban will just sit there and say, thank you very much. And what they've done is very interesting. They take a person who's a spokesperson and then the leader, it's like the good cop, bad cop. The person who makes the decisions is never there. So they say, thank you very much for presenting this opinion. We'll get back to you. And then they go and say they've passed along that. Well, I'm sorry, but I don't have authority. I watch it and it's like theater. And I say, I can see exactly what you're doing, but it's working. And so the international community, um, I think, still has to help Afghan women directly as much as possible to make sure their basic needs are met, because I do believe that there's a responsibility, like you said, an accountability uh, to helping them when they were told, if you back this agenda, we will be there for you. And it sends a bad message to you know other kind of regimes that if they utilize certain kind of negotiation tactics, maybe this could work not against women, but a certain ethnic group or a certain religious minority, right? It's a it's a very dangerous agenda. And I think um, that there has to be more pressure put on the Taliban by the US government. I know right now, the main agenda is to get out as many SIVs and others out of Afghanistan. I get that we need to do that, but I think Afghan women who weren't working with SIV, they shouldn't just be abandoned. They were part of what the US objective was and they should be included. But what is the challenge is still getting other countries. I've even been surprised and shocked at the lack of assistance. And, you know, sometimes you have to name and shame. Um, I believe the government of Cambodia, there was an Afghan woman, one 30 year old, had a master's degree. She has a diversity visa lottery. She went there for an interview and the airport officials wouldn't let her in the country. She missed the interview and now all the lottery visas have been given out. This is one single female Afghan. So this is unfortunately the 
lack of support for to give Afghan women scholarships, to give them visas, even for medical care. So I tell other countries, okay, if you think what Taliban is doing so bad, and I had an interview with the Indian um, national TV, and I said, I know it's great that on paper you have this emergency visa, but it's not possible to use it. I encourage you to give more Afghan women the ability to use your visa or your program. So most countries are saying, we don't agree with the Taliban, poor Afghan women. But when it comes to taking action, except, I mean, US and Canada, and you know, UK, at least you can say, have taken in larger numbers of people in some other European countries for scholarships, but it, the numbers are still very low as compared to the number of women who were doing the kind of work that would put them at risk. So now we have this big divide too, and this is the challenge, Afghan women who could speak out for other women, also taking them out of the country. How effective can they be on the outside? Hopefully, I mean, saving their life and preventing them from going to prison or getting getting beat for just disagreeing is, is, is necessary first. But then we're gonna have all these women who are the less educated, you know, they don't even have the ability to speak out. They're the ones that are in Afghanistan, and I feel bad. They're just trying to meet these regulations at every turn. Some right is taken away, and I've spoken to many of them. Our, our foundation supports some women while they're waiting you know, for assistance uh, in other countries, and they tell me, I feel like I'm in prison, and um, I try to be strong, but it's very difficult to continue to have hope. So that they've, they're getting a lot of mental health issues, uh, feeling like they can't work, can't go outside as much as before. And uh, they don't have, you know, ability to have somebody in, take care of them. It's like, okay, you could say, okay, if, if a country like Saudi has these restrictions, at least those women have a lot of assistance from the government. Not that I agree with those uh, restrictions, but then if you have poverty on top of it, these restrictions, it's really slowly killing somebody because inside you know you're killing them mentally and then you're preventing them from having jobs and they don't have a, a man to provide for them even in that emergency time it, it's very very dire i talked to a woman she used to be part of the ana and she sent me a picture of herself showing herself in the, at her desk in her office and then she shows me a picture of herself just sitting you know on a on the floor and it was just really horrible just that picture stayed with me and we're trying we give her a little bit of money our foundation is small but i felt like okay she was an afghan woman that you know deserves some help because i know that she doesn't have a husband and she worked before so this is the situation we're seeing i think the u.s should do more the relocation of afghan women there were some organizations that got a larger number of women to albania and from there they were processed other than that effort i don't know of any special, even special consideration like within the SIV program or P2, where I thought Afghan women who were the primary SIV holder could at least get some type of expedited or priority consideration and that's not happening. And I think it's really, uh, it's really sad that this is not a political issue, but Afghan women are not getting the support they deserve. That's really devastating to hear. And it actually ties in really well to our story today. We were, um glad to have a story from um, one of our Afghan listeners who actually told us that she takes uh, most of the day to download an episode to hear it, um, but she's actually not in Afghanistan right now. But um, this is the story of Nakma, whose name has been changed to protect her identity. Um, and I'm just going to let her tell her very short story in her own words. 
<clears throat> my story is that I'm hiding from Taliban in Tajikistan now because they came to my brother's home in 2021 and they told us that I needed to marry a Talib. I did not want to be married to the Taliban because I wanted to be a lawyer. The Taliban made too many big problems for my brother and fought too much. And I have a mother too, who was also telling the Taliban no. And the Taliban were fighting my mom. My dad had been a soldier in the Afghan army, and he died in 2018 in my village after being killed by the Taliban. I hate the Taliban. My brother told a lie to the Taliban, saying that Nagma died, and my brother cried, and my mom too, and they took my body to bury me, but they lied. They put a dead dog in the dead body box and put in a white blanket, uh, white blanket and they really go to the family cemetery and put me in the earth and put flowers in my box and cried. My family lied and cried tears so much. And they prayed too with other family. They all prayed for my janazah, which I looked this up. This is the um, uh, Muslim prayer that's said on burying a loved one. <clears throat> one at first I cried too much, but then I started laughing. I laughed because I'm not dead. I am in my mother's brother's home in Kolob City, Tajikistan, and I go to college every day to finish becoming a lawyer. I am a 24-year-old woman, and I started school in Kabul. I wanted to finish college in Afghanistan, in Kabul, but the Taliban came, and I promise you I will finish college in Tajikistan and become a lawyer. An American came to my brother's home in 2021 when the Taliban came and asked to marry me, or said they would marry me. Uh, he, the American told my brother to pretend to kill me and put me in a dead body box. And we all lied to the Taliban. The American took me to the border. At first we tried Pakistan, but there were too many Taliban there. The American told me not to try Pakistan. So we went to the Tajikistan border. I do not know the American's name, but I see his face and I know his voice and I remember it. He saved me. Um, I was really grateful to get that email in our show inbox and to any other Afghans who want to tell stories like that or stories um, that might be harder to tell, you can send those to our show email, which is the Afghanistan project podcast at gmail.com. Uh, Miriam, it's been such an informative time. I've definitely learned a lot and I'm so grateful for all the work that I'm sure you're going to continue doing on behalf of the people that deserve to get here, to have that processing completed and to find a place of safety. So thank you for joining us tonight. Uh, thank you, Bez. Thank you, Michael, for having me on your podcast, for having this podcast and um, telling the stories uh, and to share solutions to some of these issues. I know we can discuss the problem so we can get it, uh, you know, uh, to the people that can do something about it. We're not policymakers at this time, so we don't make the policy. But if we can affect that change, I think we can do it collectively. I've seen this happen through history, like I said, in my life, having seen these different cycles. And when people don't ignore it and they keep the pressure on, I believe that then the policymakers can't ignore what's happening and have to find the solutions. And so what inspires me is... I've met so many different Americans that I had not met in the last 20 years, in the last just two years. And the level of commitment they have, I do feel confident that their level of commitment will help us to improve the situation because it's something that, again, as I mentioned earlier, it's not about 
just helping the Afghans. It's about what it means to be an American and to uphold the values of our country. And I think that's what uh, Americans should realize so that we don't lose sight of why this is important. But thank you again for having me on your podcast. Well, thanks for being here. And thanks to all our listeners and viewers for sharing your time and supporting the people of Afghanistan and upholding those American ideals. So Tashakor, and we hope to see you again soon. Tashakor. Tashakor.